few weeks ago, I saw some airline fares uh, printed in the back of a newspaper, and I bet you've seen them too. Uh, some of them are pretty cheap. Uh, one I saw, I can't remember the exact price, but I think it was something like three or four hundred dollars one way to London, England. I'm going, ooh, four hundred bucks to go to London, England. What gives? You might have seen that one too. And then I heard a few days later, I heard a radio feature, and they were talking about air airfares and the advertising of airfares in the media. And what I discovered is, is that the airlines are not required by law to publish the full cost of the air of the air flight that you may have purchased. So, in other words, yeah, that's the fee. And what they ended up saying is, smart travelers realize that when you see a price in the newspaper, you should basically double it. And that's more the real cost of flying that particular flight. You're never told the real price. We're continuing our study of discipleship in Luke. And uh, we're talking today about the cost or the price of discipleship. And last week, Jesus introduced the topic to us. And he told the disciples about it in Luke chapter 9. And we discovered that Jesus spoke of three different kinds of people in this world. He talked about, and it was represented by his interaction with uh, people in in Luke chapter 9. He said, who do the crowd say I am? And while some say John the Baptist, some say some prophet raised from the dead, so forth. But but these people would represent really unbelievers or people that really aren't sure who Jesus is. Because in order to even enter into the kingdom, you have to have a concept, you have to have a belief or understanding or trust that Jesus actually is the unique Son of God, the God-man. That's very important. And, and Peter says that, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and, and Jesus says that's important. You, you will not get into the kingdom unless you have that understanding, that belief. So unbelievers don't really know who Jesus is. Believers know who Jesus is. Like uh, Peter, he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I know that. I believe that. And, and Jesus says, that's good. You have proper beliefs. So this puts you in the believer category, but I want to invite you onto something further. God's intent for every believer is to move from that category of having proper beliefs about Jesus to becoming a follower, or, uh, or the way it's described in the New Testament, a follower of Jesus is called a disciple. A disciple is one who abandons his own pursuits in life, his own livelihood, his own interests, his own ego, And he then decides, I'm going to follow this person called Jesus. And he now becomes my authority. So the difference between believers and disciples is who is in control. And Jesus says, you know, I I go through this too. I follow my father. I lay down my life. I give up control over it. And then I receive it back again in three days. Now, he says, follow me. And you'll be asked to do the same thing. So the believer says, in effect, I won't do that. I'll believe in you, but I won't follow you. I will not lay down my life, my ego, or as we learned in the in the Greek, it's called suke. My ego is still in control of my life. The disciple says, okay, I don't understand all this, but I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to lay down my ego, the part of me that wants to be in control, and I want to place it under the control of Jesus. And Jesus, now I trust you to meet my ego needs. That's what a disciple does. And last week we discovered there's a benefit to that. 
the disciple is really the one who begins to discover eternal life, which is a quality of life that you can have right here, right now. Eternal life is not just heaven when you die. Eternal life is a quality of life that Jesus promises to disciples, to those who place their ego under his control. I hope you thought about that a little bit. I think some of you did, just from the interactions that I had after the service and in various settings. And I'm very um, encouraged by that. I know it's a struggle, and I know that I'm going through the same struggle as you. Where do I stand in this whole believer-disciple thing? Today we're going to go a little bit further in our journey into this uh, topic, I guess. And Jesus says, you know, before you even decide on this disciple thing, you've got to know there is some cost. There is something that is going to be required of you in order to move from being a believer who just believes the right stuff and goes to church and goes back and does his own thing. There's a difference between that and being a disciple who follows, who lays down his ego. He says there's, there's cost to that, and you need to know. And Jesus is not like the airlines with their hidden costs, okay? He says, I want you to know up front what this could involve for you, the kind of things that may be required of you. There's no hidden costs here. Jesus does not trick us into discipleship. He says, I'm just going to lay it out for you, and it's not going to be pretty. And uh, this is probably one of the hardest sayings that we actually have from Jesus, is his actual teaching on discipleship. He says, here it is in all of its uh, unvarnished glory. And these are the costs. It's not hidden, it's here, it's all up front. But I also want to indicate to you today that there are some costs to you if you decide to remain at the believer level. And we're going to talk about those as well. But this morning, Jesus is here. Jesus is preaching. The Spirit of God is here. And he's inviting all of us to become disciples. He says that to everybody. He says, come follow me. And so we're going to look a little bit about what that means and what it could mean for you so that you have a clear indication. There's no hidden costs. But then we're also going to ask for a response. Will you follow Jesus as a disciple? So let's pray. This is important business here. Father, you are sovereign over the universe. You have authority over heaven and earth. You have authority in our lives. You have authority in this church We place ourselves this morning under the authority of your word. And we place ourselves under the authority of your son, Jesus Christ, who has the final word. And the authority of your spirit, who helps us to understand your word and apply it to our lives. And so, Father, as we look at the cost of discipleship, I pray that you would open our uh, ears and our eyes. At the very end, Sharon read to us your words, Jesus. You said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so we want to have ears to hear what you, Spirit of God, are saying to us this morning, what you're inviting us to. And I pray that some would have courage to begin that journey. And for those of us who are on the journey, to carry on. Um, So we just pray that your will would be done and that uh, what I say or the way I say it would not distort or constrict or impede in any way what you want to do here this morning. But you are here and you are speaking. So speak, Lord, for we are listening. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So Luke 14 is where we are. And our passage starts at verse 25. That's where the reading was. But I want to give you a little bit of context of Luke 14. Um, Whenever you're studying a scripture passage, it's always good to look back at what happened just before the passage 
that you're concentrating on is to give you a little bit of the setting. And the context is uh, Jesus is talking about banquets in Luke 14. He goes to a banquet and uh, he's sitting down at the house of a prominent Pharisee. And he does some teaching about that, about who you should invite to banquets and those kind of things. And one of the pictures that Jesus is trying to get across to us is that life with God, eternal life or Zoe, is seen as a continual feast. Okay. Now we know we have images from Revelation that, that once God's church's bride is gathered to him, there's going to be a big wedding feast of the Lamb. And uh, that's a powerful image. And Jesus is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And that is a powerful image. And, but I think another image of the, of the kingdom of God, just in general, is that of a banquet to which you and I are invited. And the question that Jesus has for us is, will you come? And so he talks about that starting in verse 15, uh, just a few verses before our passage. And he tells the parable of the, of the man who's going to hold a great banquet. You know that one? And he says, you know, everything's ready, the uh, the caviar is chilled, and uh, the French bread has been sliced, and the table has been set, and the strawberries have been cut, and they're all arranged. And he says, everybody come to my banquet, everybody that's been invited. So the servants go out and they start inviting people. And the, But it requires a response, you see. If you're invited to God's banquet, which I think is actually a, a picture of eternal life, that eternal quality of life, you must stop what you're doing, lay down your tools or your book or whatever it is you're doing, you must lay that down, stop what you're doing, and come to the banquet. So that's what happens. The servants go out, they invite people, and uh, what they get back is a lot of excuses. One guy says, well, I just bought a field, you know, so I better go check that out. Another guy says, well, I just uh, was down at the auction mart and I bought some oxen. And I like a new tractor, you know, a farmer with a new tractor. you got to go try it out, eh? So he says, man, i got to try out this oxen. I just can't, you know. So sorry, I'd like to come to the banquet, but I can't come. Another fellow says, you know what? He says, it's, it's even more important than that. I just got married. I've just started a family. And so I can't come. So they make all the excuses. And it turns out that the, none of the people that were originally were invited end up coming. And the guy who who uh, is in charge of the banquet ends up going out into the streets and just compelling people, just basically dragging them out of the back alleys and everywhere. He says, my house will be full. And those who were invited and did not choose to come will not come. And I always thought, and I think it is, I always thought that was strictly about salvation. In other words, the call to salvation to to enter the kingdom comes to all of us, and some respond and some don't. And I think it is about that. But look at what Jesus does immediately after telling that parable. Okay, that was verse 23. So the master told the servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes, make them come in so the house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. He turns to them all and he says, if anybody comes to me and does not hate his brother or mother, his wife, his children, his brother and sisters, even his whole life, he cannot be my disciple. So the banquet, or the parable of the banquet is also about discipleship. Did you catch that? It is about, I think, about salvation, but it's also about discipleship, because Luke places it right after the 
this teaching on discipleship right after the parable of the banquet. So, what's going on here? I think now, in our passage, verses 25 and following, he is in some way explaining this parable of the banquet to the crowds. He turns to the crowd and says, you know what, there is a great banquet of eternal life set out for you who believe in me. But to sit down and enjoy it, there's going to be a cost. You have to come and sit down. You have to say goodbye to some of the things in your life that are controlling you and that you think are most important. There's a cost. You have to say goodbye to some things. And then he goes on and he explains some of the costs of becoming a disciple of Jesus. The first thing he talks about is family loyalty, verse 26. He says, if you don't hate your hate, (laughs) hate, whoa, hate. If you don't hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sisters, like your literal family, the literal nuclear family that God has placed placed you with, you cannot be my disciple. If we want to be a disciple, we must hate our family. Isn't that a bit of an unusual statement? Doesn't that strike you a little weird? This is shocking to us even today. And it was even more shocking in Jesus today, Jesus' day because family was everything. Uh, family isn't quite as much to us probably as it meant to them in that day because we grow up and then we go move to Vancouver or Toronto or States or whatever and we live far away from the families that we were raised in. He didn't do that in Jesus' day. You were born in a village or on a farm and you were raised by your parents, and then you got married to somebody in the village, some girl that you you went to Jewish synagogue school with or whatever, and you stayed in that village for life. And then when your parents got old, they moved in with you, and uh, you know you you everything was family. Family was everything. And here's Jesus saying, you got to hate your family if you're going to follow me. That's the cost. What's this hate thing? Well, it's a relative term. To hate in this context means to ignore the demands of or say goodbye to. Or not to allow this to control you anymore like it once did. So Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you must love me and place my priorities ahead of your family's loyalty. Or loyalty to your family. Or your family's opinion of you for following me. This can hurt, as some of you know very well. It can hurt if your family does not know the Lord. Even if your family does know the Lord, it can still hurt. Because you're taking him seriously now. You're moving beyond the believer stage to discipleship. And if you're from a family of believers and you say, I'm going to be a disciple your priorities are going to change. And they may not understand this. And they may not appreciate it. Back in the parable of earlier in the chapter about the banquet, 1420, the guy says, I've just gotten married. I've created a new family here. I cannot come to this banquet. See, a believer will not place loyalty to Jesus above loyalty to family. And Jesus is saying, you need to. That's part of the cost. 
what the family says about him or to him or about him is more important to him than what Jesus says. So Jesus, do you really mean we got to hate our families in this sense that our loyalty to you supersedes loyalty to family relationships? He's not saying you ignore family relationships. He's not saying you don't, don't obey your mom and dad anymore. He's not saying that, but he's saying your, your allegiance, if it's a choice between following me and doing what your family wants you to do, Jesus is saying, what are you going to do if you're a disciple? That's part of the cost. Next thing he says, kind of ramps it up a little bit more. He says, you must also submit your ego to me. So he's listing off, you know, hating father, mother, brothers, sisters. And then at the end of 26, he says, yes, you must hate even your own life if you're going to be a disciple. There's that word again, life, hating your own life. It's the same word used last week where Jesus said, he who wishes to save his own life or ego, or suke, will lose it. But if you hate your life in comparison to your love for me, if you place your suke under my control, you will actually discover life. You will actually discover eternal life. When I behave as a believer, and by the way, maybe I should say this too, what I'm discovering in this whole thing is it's, it's not, it doesn't seem to be absolutely black and white. Like there are days when I'm doing, I'm just behaving like a believer and I'm just living with my ego. And then there's days where I actually make a few disciple decisions. And I think what Jesus is saying, it's a path, it's a journey. He's saying it's not like you're 100% believer, 100% disciple, but it's a path. We want to move from one world into the other, okay? And he says, follow me, I'll teach you how to be a disciple. Okay, that's what he's inviting us to do. So, But if we do that, we have to deal with our own egos because when we're purely in the believer stage, our ego is in control. We will never do anything that causes us discomfort. We will never do anything that we do not want to do. We will never, do, and our ego is in control. We will defend ourselves to the end. We will demand our own way. We will say no to what God asks of us. And we'll do it, just flat out. We'll just say no to God. And Jesus says, well, understand, you need to understand, you can do that, but if you do that, you're not behaving as a disciple. I invite you to think this morning with me. I think God is asking us, who is in control of your life? Who is the dominant influence over you? How do you make decisions? And it's not to say that a disciple is going to perfectly, 100% obey Jesus every time. But a disciple is somebody who's learning that path. He's moving from the ego-centered universe. He's moving from there to the Christ-centered universe. And to become a disciple is a journey of discovery of how much your ego is really in charge of your life. <laughs> and it's a maturing process of moving from one world to the other. Would you be willing to pay that price? And here is my challenge I throw out to you. If you really are, are serious about beginning this process, I invite you to ask the Lord to show you Areas in your life in which your ego is in control. And it's a dangerous prayer. Because <laughs> he'll show you. And he won't overwhelm you. He won't show you everything at once. But he will begin to show you uh, the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is so beautiful and he's so gentle. Like he won't kill you with it. But he'll just, be, he'll just, you'll have a conversation with your spouse. And then an hour later, the Spirit of God will say, you know what you just said there? You know, that was your ego in control. 
Or you'll, you'll be in a conflict with somebody and you'll think about it and you'll say, Lord, what's going on? And he'll begin showing you, okay, when you're doing this, when you're demanding your way, when you're doing this or that, it's your ego in control. And at that point, you have a choice. You could say, okay, I'm going to keep on going down that path. And the Lord says, okay, you can do that, but that's not what a disciple does. Or you can say, Lord, I, I don't want to live this way. Show me how to be a disciple. And then he'll show you. That's the process of following Jesus. But it starts with you getting serious about it and saying, Lord, you show me. Because no one can show you except the Lord. The spirit who lives in you knows your heart and your mind. He's the one who shows you. But there's more. (laughs) Jesus asks more. He says, let your ego die. And then he says, pick up your cross and follow me. Now, what's the cross here? Well, a condemned Roman criminal was required to carry the cross bar, the, the horizontal bar, uh, publicly through the, through the streets of the town or the city to his place of execution. And the reason Rome did that is they wanted it public and they wanted it as a declaration that the criminal is saying, Rome is right and I was wrong. Okay? Publicly. And I accept the judgment of Rome as I walk towards the place where I will be nailed to this piece of wood. It was a public declaration. Okay, And so Jesus says, disciples then, each of us has a cross waiting for us. Jesus said, I carried mine. It was actually made out of wood, <laughs> and I was actually nailed to it. Okay, And I died on that. Part of what I was doing there, among other things, is showing you what I'm inviting you to if you're going to follow me. The cross is the extra suffering or inconvenience or whatever it is of being a disciple. The cross is something that you uh, willingly choose. You see, no one can force you. Even Jesus said, he said, no one takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down. Nobody, they didn't have to beat him to get him to lay down and be nailed to that piece of wood. He willingly did it. And so he invites his disciples. He says, I, I'm not going to force you to do this, but I invite you. If you want to be a disciple, if you want to learn uh, what eternal life is about, you need to lay down on this thing of your own choice. So the cross is the extra suffering or inconvenience or pain or loss or whatever it is that will come into your life from the, as a result of saying yes to Jesus. It means you may have to give up something that you maybe didn't want to give up. It means you may have to go somewhere that you didn't really want to go. It may mean giving up some social status among your friends, even your Christian friends. Um, you know, It could mean any number of things. There's a call of God on your life. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. But in order for you to discover it and fulfill it, it's going to involve you giving up something in order to gain the life that God has for you. And Jesus calls that a cross. Okay. So the question is, then he gives two illustrations. He says, a guy's going to build a tower. Um, if he's smart, he'll, he'll look at his bank account and see if he's got money in the bank to build it. Otherwise, he'll get halfway done and, and it'll just have a foundation. Or a king who's going to go to war, if he's only got 10,000 soldiers and he's going against 20,000, he's going to have to count the cost. Can I win? Can I win this battle? Is it worth the cost to me? And Jesus, then he says, if, you know, you've got to think about this. It will cost you something. And then he says, if anybody does not give up everything he has, he cannot be my disciple. Like the ramp just keeps getting higher and higher. It's crazy. 
He says, give up everything you have. Verse 33. The word means to give up or renounce. To renounce ownership over your life and all your stuff and become a manager or a steward. And people have argued, well, does he really mean we have to go sell every last article? I don't believe he does. But I think he says you have to give up ownership of the stuff in your life in the sense of you go from being an owner to being a steward or a manager. So that you say, my house is now God's house. My car is now God's car. My tools are now God's tools. My kitchen is now God's kitchen. And so I am a manager of it. And if God says it's got to go, it goes. If God says I keep it, I keep it. You see, there's the difference there. We give up the right of ownership over our stuff. Back in the parable of the banquet... The believer, the guy who's invited, he makes excuses. He says, no, I bought this oxen, it's mine. I bought this field, it's mine. I'm going to go look at it. I'm going to go check out my oxen in the field. I won't give up my right over that to come to the banquet. Jesus says, that's what it costs. You have the right to refuse. But if you do that, then you're not behaving as a disciple. So, 